Father in heaven, we are very mindful today on September 11th um, that we live in a fallen world as we think about uh, the anniversary of September 11th, 2001. And I pray that you would give us hope tonight that uh, not only uh, are there things like September 11th that occur in our world, but there's also lots of other pain, um, lots of other heartache, lots of other suffering. And many people in this room are experiencing some form of suffering and pain and heartache right now. And they're wondering if you're still there and if you care. And so, Father, would you come and would you be near to us tonight as we look at Exodus chapter 2? We need a word from you. You tell us that Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we pray that you would do all those things through your word and that you would show us Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me, uh, if you're not already there, to Exodus chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, look on the announcement sheet. You'll see the text printed for you on the handout. Not sure if you're aware of this or not, but Thrifty Car Rental every year does a honeymoon disaster contest. And some of the entries into this contest are really pretty amazing. I'm going to list a couple of the winners, past winners, of this honeymoon disaster contest. On their way to Idaho from Nevada, Paul and Leah Lusk of Sugar City, Idaho, their car flipped into floodwaters. And when they emerged, Paul, who had hit his head in the accident, could not remember the accident nor could he remember his bride's name, nor could he remember that he had ever been married. Can you imagine on your honeymoon? Then there's the story of a couple from California that goes to Cancun for their honeymoon, and after a day of laying by the pool and a night of dancing, they walk into the room, and Doug, who is 6'4", 255 pounds, playfully throws his bride onto the bed and lands on her, breaking two bones in her right leg. (laughs) Three hours, eight screws... And one plate later, they're left with a hospital bill of $11,000 that insurance will not cover. And then finally, there is May and Kyle, who were on a cruise for their honeymoon, and they were forced to listen to a comedian who told jokes about the Titanic. And in the middle of the night, they wake up to the sound of crunching metal and the captain over the loudspeaker saying, we must abandon the ship immediately. True story. So they get in their lifeboat, and the lifeboat ends up in St. Martin where the cruise line decides to put them up at a nudist colony. (laughs) 
which might be appropriate. Anyway, nobody got that. <laughs> Y'all were a little slow on the uptake, but I'm glad you got it. Okay. Why do I begin talking about honeymoons? Well, it's because we think about honeymoons and we think this is the one time in life when everything is supposed to go perfectly. That there is supposed to be no problems and things are supposed to turn out well. And we take that same mentality into every area of our lives oftentimes. For example, we have this mentality oftentimes if we just get married or if I could just get that job or if I could just get in that right social group or if I could just get into that grad school, if I could just fill in the blank with whatever it is that you want to fill in the blank with. But if I could just get that, then I would be in a place where all of my problems would suddenly go away. And life would be good and would work. And then you know what happens? When you get there, the problems don't go away. And what you start to realize as you get older and grow, and maybe you're even realizing this now, is that there really are no honeymoons in life. That life instead is filled with unfulfilled longings. Life is filled with failures. Failures at work, getting fired. Failures in morality. Failures in integrity. Failures in relationships. And in that moment, whether you're an atheist here tonight, whether you're a non-Christian, whether you're struggling with doubt, or whether your faith has never been better, or whatever, wherever you are, in that moment of pain and suffering and heartache and difficulty, everyone's asking the question, where in the world is God in all of this? And you know, that's a great question. And some of you might be asking that question tonight, but I think there's a better question. And here's the other question. The real question is, do you have a worldview that can handle those things? Do you have a worldview tonight that can handle the pain and the suffering and the heartache of life? A worldview that acknowledges on the one hand the suffering and pain in the world but also gives you hope in the midst of it. You see, normally we fall on one extreme or the other. Meaning you have folks that when something bad happens in their life, they have no hope. And so they get bitter and they get cynical and they become actually less than human because the suffering that they're involved in actually defines them. That's one end. And then on the other end... You have the folks that have hope, but it's a very superficial hope. And they actually deny reality. They deny the heartache and the pain and the suffering. And they cover it up and deny it by saying things like, well, it's really not that big a deal. It's not that bad. Well, I mean, look, I'm definitely not suffering like that person. You know, they've been through a lot worse things and on down the line. And in those comments, 
They're actually denying, in a sense, reality. And that suffering really is real, and it really does hurt, and it really is painful. Well, tonight, here's what we're going to learn. The Bible gives you the resources to handle those things. The Bible gives us the resources to look suffering in the eye and acknowledge it and to weep over it and to mourn over it. But it doesn't leave us without hope. Because you see, the Bible also is real about suffering, but also gives us tremendous hope in the process. This semester we've been studying, this is our second week in our study of the book of Exodus, the story of salvation. And tonight we're going to learn that the story of salvation involves a God who is always at work. A God who is at work in the seemingly mundane details of your life. A God who is at work in your pain. A God is that, who is at work in your sin and in your failure. And he brings those things together and weaves them together to create something very beautiful. Here's the theme tonight. God is at work. And he's at work in three ways in this passage that we see. He's at work behind the scenes. He's at work in and through our failures. And lastly, we're going to see that God is at work in our desperation. Let's look at number one. God is at work behind the scenes. Very interesting. If you noticed and we're following along in the passage, God's name doesn't appear at all until the last three verses of this chapter. Narratives, when we read them, are meant to invite us into the story. And so let's get into the story and think about what's happening. At the end of chapter 1, Pharaoh has commanded genocide and commanded that all male babies be cast into the Nile. And then God's name doesn't show up to the last three verses of chapter 2. And I don't know about you, but if we are the Hebrew people and we get into this narrative, what is the question we're asking? Well, the question that they're asking has to be, wait a minute. God, if we're your people, that means you love us. And if you love us, where in the world are you in this? And the answer is, he's at work. He's at work behind the scenes. And yes, it's hard to see, but he is at work pushing his details and his plan forward in order to rescue his people. And we see it in lots of places in this chapter, but I'm going to put it point out one for the sake of time, but the clearest place we see it is through Pharaoh's daughter. Did you think about how ironic that was? That out, out of all of the people that protect Moses and rescue him from the Nile, it's someone under Pharaoh's roof. It's his daughter. And what we learn is that God is not absent. But he's actually at work and he's carefully overseeing this process of ordinary events, bringing them to pass 
in order to bring about the salvation of his people. And friends, I realize tonight that some of you are right there and you're asking that very question. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know there's some hard things in this room. And you're asking the question, where is God in all of this? And here's what the Bible doesn't say. The Bible's answer is not, suck it up. Deal with it. God's in control. Be happy. No. The Bible acknowledges the hardness of suffering and the difficulty of suffering. But at the same time, you know what the Bible does? It tells us that God is near. And that he's actually in control and at work in the details of your life. Even your confusion. Even in your hardship. Even in your suffering in things that we don't understand. And so then the question is, well, wait a minute. So are you telling me that God is the author of the bad things in my life? Well, here's a biblical response to that question. Back in Genesis chapter 1, God created the world. And in the original blueprint of the world, it did not include suffering. It did not include cancer. It did not include death. It did not include 9-11 and things like that happening in the world. And we see that that is not part of the plan when we look ahead to a chapter in the Bible in a story like John chapter 11. And you don't have to turn there, but you can write it down as a reference. But we see what God thinks of suffering when we get to John chapter 11. Because in John chapter 11, Jesus' friend dies, and he goes to the tomb, and you know how he responds? He weeps. And he gets angry. And what that shows us is that God doesn't like suffering any more than you and I do. But, in that same chapter, Jesus takes that tragedy and he uses it for his own glorious purposes in a way that we don't understand. And one day, Jesus promises to come back into the world and to take all the wrongs you see around you and make them right. And he promises to come back and make everything that is sad untrue. Isn't that amazing? But in the meantime, as we wait for Jesus to come back, we live in a world that's a mixture of great joy on one side and great sorrow and suffering on the other. But if you're a Christian and you have faith in Jesus, God in, the, in, his, in His Word tells us that He takes our suffering and our hardship and He weaves those things into our lives and He regulates the size of them and He regulates the character of them and the timing of them so that if we have faith in Him, He takes those things and He makes us into something beautiful and wonderful. And friends, I don't understand that. I don't know how all that works. But it's what God says. And I know that He's God and I'm not. 
And I know that His ways are not my ways and His thoughts are not my thoughts. And I don't understand it, but here's what I know because the Bible tells me that it's true. And that is that God is good. And that God can be trusted. And so what we learn is that maybe the events in your life aren't necessarily about you seeking answers and meaning. But maybe the events in your life are to show us that God is actually seeking you. And yes, we don't understand it, but that He is actually seeking us and bringing things into our lives in His timing to mature us and to grow us and to give us what we, may, what we need so that we can live a more godly life and be more like Jesus. God is at work behind the scenes. Secondly, God is at work, we see in this passage, through failure. Look at verse 11. Stephen in the book of Acts tells us that at this point, Moses was 40 years old. So think about that with me. Moses is 40 years old, and so he had lived under Pharaoh's roof, and so he's well-educated, he's well-connected, he's a mover and a shaker, he's going places. And look what happens. He blows it, doesn't he? Big time. He kills an Egyptian in a fit of anger and rage. And because of that, he has to leave and go away to Midian. And he's actually there for 40 years. And we'll talk about what happens after those 40 years next week. He's there for 40 years tending sheep for someone else's flock. And here's what I want us to see. Is that even in this massive failure that was brought about by his own doing and brought about by his own sin, that even in that, God is at work through it. Now think about that just for a second. I want that to sit with you. I want that to sit in your heart and I want it to comfort you on the one hand but also convict you on the other hand. Because most of us, if we're honest, and me included, we think that God's only at work in the good stuff. That God's only at work when things are going our way. But at the moment that we blow it or have some massive moral failure in our life or blow it big time or do something that is very shameful, we immediately, our knee-jerk reaction is to think, God's quit working. God's not in this. And that is why you are thrilled. And when you're thrilled, you say things like, it's a God thing. Or, God's at work. God is good. And we say that when the circumstances line up just right so that we meet the person of our dreams. Or we say that when we get into the sorority that we long to get into. But let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God's just as much at work when you get an MIP? Do you believe that God's just as much at work when you get caught cheating in one of your classes? 
Do you believe tonight that God is just as much at work when you're blackout drunk and your friend has to take you to the hospital? Do you believe that God's at work when you don't get that bid to the fraternity or sorority that you long to be in? You see, friends, He is. And some of you tonight believe that in your head. And you would give a lip service to it. But the question is, does your heart believe it? And when God grants you that relationship that you've been praying for, it's easy, isn't it, to say, God is good. God's at work. And you start looking at how God has done all these things to bring that relationship to pass. But isn't God also at work in the breakup? Isn't God also at work in your inability to handle the breakup? And could it be that he's showing you that in your inability to handle the breakup that you've actually built your life on that relationship and made an idol out of it? And could it be that God brings that breakup into your life in order to bubble up your sin and idolatry so that you'll deal with it and actually be made more like Him? And then finally... We often just think God's at work when, you know, we can see God's work at work when we love reading our Bibles and we're really into praying and everything seems enjoyable in the Christian life. But have you thought about that maybe God's just as much at work when your spiritual life seems to be dry and when you feel nothing And when you struggle with the same sin over and over and over again. Friends, one of the main themes of this story is that God is always at work. God is always good. And in the story of Exodus, we see a story of a God who is big enough to take these detours in our lives that we don't understand and cause them to be the best thing that's ever happened to us. That's the God of Exodus. God is at work behind the scenes. He's at work in our failures. And lastly, through our desperation. Look at verses 23 through 25. My favorite verses of the whole chapter. Absolutely amazing. The people of Israel groaned and cried out for help, and God did not run. He didn't turn and go the other way. God heard their groanings and He remembered His covenant with them. And there's tons that we could talk about, but here's what I want us to see. That it is actually our desperation. It is actually our weakness and our brokenness that is the very thing that turns God's heart towards your own. Let me repeat that. It's your desperation... Your brokenness and your weakness, that's the thing that turns God's heart towards your own. And we instinctively think that it's our goodness. And so we think in order to turn God's heart towards us that we've got to parade our goodness in front of Him. But that actually turns God away. 
God's heart is moved through desperation. In fact, the Bible says that we can't even become a Christian until we get helpless and desperate and realize that Jesus is our only hope and that we need to be rescued. You see, you want God to work in your life. You want God to do something huge this semester. It starts by coming to the end of yourself. I have a friend who's an area coordinator with RUF. His name's John Stone. He's a good friend. He travels a lot, and he tells a story about a time he was coming home. He lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he was coming into his neighborhood. He was traveling late, 12.30 in the morning, and he comes up over the hill to his neighborhood, and he sees a house that is fully engulfed in flames. Full-blown house fire. Appears to be no one around. He pulls over, thinking someone's in the house, gets out his phone, dials 911, makes the call, Hangs up, and when he hangs up, he gets out. He doesn't know what to do. He's waiting on the fire department. Well, about this time, the garage door opens, and out drive two cars. So evidently, they needed to save the cars. And so they pull the cars over, and the owner of the house comes over to John Stone and grabs him by the collar and pulls him up as close as he possibly can to the fire without being burned. And the owner runs to both sides of the house and pulls the garden hose out as far as he can. And he grabs John Stone, my friend, by the collar and says, Here, start putting out the fire. And so they're sitting there with garden hoses, putting out a full-blown house fire. And you laugh because that's absurd, isn't it? That's crazy. But is it? Because, friends, that's exactly what we look like when we try to save ourselves and rescue ourselves. That's exactly what we look like when we try to deal with our own shame and fix our own sin problem. Our house is fully engulfed in flames. And instead of getting desperate and running to Jesus with all that we have, we get our garden hoses out. We get our garden hoses out of covering up so that we can look better. Our garden hoses of downplaying. Eh, It's not really that big a deal. Or we lie about who we really are. Or we exaggerate the truth about ourselves so that we can be painted in the best light. Or we fake it and pretend. And if we don't go that route, we go the route of moralism and we say that if I just had a better workout plan, if I could just lose a few pounds, or we go and we say we need some circumstances changed, God. Would you please? It's my parents. I need better parents. Or I need better friends. Or I need a better devotional plan and I promise I would be better and I would be fixed and I wouldn't struggle with these things. Can we talk? Every one of us, me being the chief among them, we know we're not what we're supposed to be. And instead of being desperate, we 
are running around frantically trying to cover it up and trying to fix ourselves and change ourselves through our own efforts. And you know what God wants? He wants us to stop. You know what John Stone actually wanted the man to do that night? He actually wanted him to put the hose down, to go back to the street, and to let the house burn all the way to the ground. That is exactly what God wants from us tonight. God wants us to stop trying to fix ourselves and to stop making excuses for our sin. And He wants us to let our house burn all the way to the ground. And here's why. Because when we let it burn, our record and all the things that we're trying to prove, guess who we meet in the ashes? You finally meet Jesus. You meet Jesus who, like Moses, was born under a death sentence when Herod commanded that every child be put to death. And you meet Jesus who was going to the cross for our sin and He was about to be crucified and days before He goes to a garden and He gets down on His knees and He's in such anguish that He's sweating blood. And you know what He says? God, Father, please take this away from me. I don't want to do this. And what we expect in that moment is that the Father's going to swoop down and to rescue Jesus and rescue His Son. But instead, Jesus gets silence. And then three days later, He goes and He hangs on that cross. And again, if you know the story, Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> Crickets. Silence. Nothing. And instead, God forsakes him and kills him. Why? For you. For Luke. And for Rob. And for Gary. Jesus did it. Because in the midst of His cries of desperation, God the Father forsake His cries and He got nothing but silence so that you and I in our cries for desperation could always be heard by God the Father. Let's pray. Father, 
There are lots of hard things uh, in this room. And you know them individually. And so I pray that you would be near to us and that we would feel your presence and your nearness and that these truths that we've learned would not just be in our heads and something that we've known, but they would actually be a reality in our hearts. And only you can do that. Would you take your spirit and apply this so that we could live differently and be changed? And that doesn't mean everything's going away. But it means that we'll have hope in the midst of it. And would you do the, these things? And Father, as we sing this last song, maybe we could even sing it, it is well with our soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.